Welcome to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. I'm Thomas. And I'm Nick. And we have the special privilege today of interviewing Matthew Bates. He is the Associate Professor of Theology at Quincy University in Quincy, Illinois. He's also the author of the book that we have talked about often on this podcast, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Matthew, it's great to have you with us. Hey, thanks so much, Nick Thomas. Uh, it's a real pleasure, and uh, it's a great to talk to some gospel-centered guys. <laughs> the only gospel-centered podcast on the internet I'll have you know. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we, we've, we've been talking a lot about the gospel um, and, and what it means and how uh, there's sort of a battle, <laughs> a battle for, for the gospel um, and who gets to lay claim to it. Uh, so, Matthew, you, you've written this book that we love and we've plugged, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Um, so tell us, why do you hate Protestants? Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I do sometimes get that uh, from people, uh, you know, as uh, people just read the title, I think, and uh, react, <laughs> right? Salvation by Allegiance Alone, obviously this must be heresy. Um, and uh, so uh, I have gotten some pushback, especially from some people in the free grace camp, um, but uh, others as well, I think, who uh, just uh, don't really want to take the time to probe the interior of the ideas there. Uh, well, we have just been thrilled by the book and think you've done some great work. How did you how did you come across this idea? What led you to write this book? Well, it's a long story. Um, it really started actually when I was in seminary. I was uh, at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, studying with the likes of Gordon Fee and Rick Watts and uh, Ian Proven, Phil Long, some people like that. But while I was doing that, I was I was uh, reading N.T. Wright. Um, I'd like to say it was before N.T. Wright was even cool. You know, kind of like I kind of like I liked that Garage Band that you know ended up being a smash hit. I liked him before anyone else did. Uh, not quite. Um, not quite. Um, but actually, I had to read as. Um, part of a requirement for a course there was 50 I think it was 50 books that you got to choose like 10 of or whatever you know but they, they were they had to be off the approved list uh, and one of them was N.T. Wright's The Challenge of Jesus and so I decided I, I had heard about this N.T. Wright guy at least vaguely at that point uh, this was back in uh, what was this has been 2001 and uh, so I decided to, um, to, to to take up The Challenge of Jesus and uh, when I did, uh, it kind of rocked my world a little bit. I was interested in biblical studies already. I uh, was probably intending to, uh, if I could, maybe continue on, but I didn't even know if that was possible. Um, I was uh, did my undergrad in physics and, you know, was kind of a newcomer to doing theology or biblical studies. But I had definitely already caught the bug. Anyway, uh, as I was reading The Challenge of Jesus, um, I came across um, some material in there where, uh, especially um, uh Wright points out that Josephus, who was a general in um, the, the, the war with Rome, and Josephus is this Jew, Jewish general, he, he calls somebody to uh, repent and to become loyal to him again, right? Um, and so it's very close to this language of repent and believe in me. And that just sort of uh, was the beginning, I think, of, uh, of opening up my mind to this idea that maybe pistis, um, this word that we use for faith or belief, might have more to do with loyalty or allegiance than we uh, we might suspect. And this uh, this isn't uh, an idea that you made up, right? I mean, you, you've done some pretty uh, in-depth lexical work in your book explaining that 
you know, this isn't this doesn't just make better sense of the Bible, which we think it does, but it it's also deeply rooted in the actual lexical history of pistis. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's fair to say sometimes there's misunderstandings about how words mean things um, that can cause <laughs> can cause problems in in this whole discussion. Um, yeah, so maybe I'll circle back to to how words mean things. Uh, I'll I'll cap off my story about how I came up with this you know topic um, by saying that it didn't stop there. I guess um, I, I did continue to do some lexical work um, throughout just my my training as. Um, a biblical scholar working on the PhD, but really I was focused on other things at the time, but my, my heart kept um, sort of um, circling back to this idea that Pistis's allegiance might be really important for the church. So even though I had some other things cooking, um, I was thinking about that. But at the same time in my dissertation work, I had to work on the gospel intensely. Um, my dissertation work was on Paul's use of the Old Testament and not necessarily like how does Paul interpret this verse or that verse, but does he have a whole theory of interpretation? Does he have a hermeneutic? Um, and so as I was working on that, it seemed that um, some of the passages where Paul speaks most eloquently about the the, the gospel, uh, he sort of syncs that with statements about how he sees the Old Testament. So it sort of forced me to be thinking about the relationship between the gospel and the Old Testament more and how that might relate to Paul's theory of interpretation of Scripture. So I was working on these gospel passages, and it's really the bringing of those together um, that that really led to this book. So in your recent article um, for Catalyst, you write about uh, reforming the Reformation, and you, you come out and you call justification by faith um, a false gospel. Um, that's sure to ruffle some feathers. You want to uh, talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that, that's strong language, I suppose. <laughs> um, yeah, hopefully I wasn't just being polemical or in a, in a, in a more wild moment in saying that. Um, well, the, the thing is that oftentimes it's asserted that justification by faith is the heart of the gospel or it is the gospel. You could find statements uh, to that effect in John Piper's work and uh, John MacArthur's work. Uh, and those are, those are some of the good guys, right? I mean, these are, uh, I think, some of our most excellent pastor scholars um, where they would assert that justification by faith is the heart of the gospel or it's central to the gospel. The problem is when we actually look at what the Bible says about the gospel, we actually look on the words euangelion, euangelizo, uh, the words that connect to the gospel, and we look at the passages where the gospel seems to be transparently articulated, and we just don't find justification by faith there. Um, we might find a connection to faith. Um, we might find connection to language of righteousness of God. Um, but that's not the same as justification by faith. And so what's ended up happening is I think that um, justification by faith was hailed by Luther as central to the gospel. And people have sort of just picked that up and ran with it. Um, it's, uh, it's undoubtedly a very important principle. So I'd want to say on the one hand, we can say that justification by faith is true. We are justified by faith. It's quite another thing to say that it is the gospel, though. And that's where the confusion lies. And, and jumping off that real quick... Uh, I, I'm reminded of uh, arguments I had in seminary about the, the subjective or objective genitive of the Pistis Christu debate. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, uh, what because I think you, if I recall, adopt a, a subjective reading of, say, Romans 3.22. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the use of the righteousness of God and the faith and those who are believing and being faithful. Uh, how does the, how does the, say, that battleground kind of verse, just as an example, kind of play into your, your thesis in this work? Yeah, yeah. Um... 
it, it does play into it. Um, on the one hand, I don't want to overstate the degree to which it does. Um, I think that there's indisputable evidence that um, we do need to um, direct our pistis toward Jesus Christ, right? Jesus the Messiah. Um, we see a number of passages where it's indisputably clear that um, we have to understand some of this uh, pistis language as directed toward Jesus. Um, I, I, I trot through some of those passages in, in, um, uh, in Salvation by Allegiance alone where I think that evidence is clear. Um, but at the same time, there is a possibility of the subjective genitive reading. And for those who aren't familiar with this terminology at all, um, the subjective genitive would, would involve the idea that Jesus is the actor, right, or Jesus the Christ is the actor who's performing the pistis action. So um, the objective reading would be the idea that that Jesus is the object of the pistis action and that we're the subject, right? That we're the ones who are putting our faith in Jesus. And then uh, for the subjective, it would be the idea that Jesus is the one who's acting in a faithful way or an allegiant way. So um, I do argue that I, I think that it is more likely that we see Jesus as the actor, the one who's performing the allegiant actions. And um, I think that we can establish this on the basis of um, Romans 1, 16 through 17, um, and how that connects to um, Romans 3, 21 through 26. It takes a very close reading of those passages, I think, to establish the point, though. I rely on uh, the work of Douglas Campbell and some others, uh, obviously Richard Hayes, um, who have who have done some preliminary work there. This isn't really my own cutting-edge work. It would be more my, my, my seeing how their cutting-edge work might fit into something else that's interesting. What I, what I think makes this so powerful, personally, is... Uh, if Christ is the the actor of of, uh, of our allegiance, as I think I think you're right, Romans three twenty two very clearly has, I mean the the pistos, you know Jesus Christ and stuff like that, but Paul seems to follow it up with for all or for those who are being faithful or allegiant, and so there always seems to be kind of a, uh, you can even say you have the subjective genitive and the the objective outworking of that almost within the same sentence or clause in a lot of Paul's language which I think works really well with, with how, you, uh, how you've shown faithfulness or, or rather allegiance to be a, a major uh, Christological theme and, and something that really is worth exploring and you've done a really cool job with. So I'm sorry, I, just, I, saw, I, re I reread that section of your book and I thought that was just really cool. It's just one of those things I missed the first time I read it. Good, yeah. Um, well, I think that it's, um, you know, one of the things that's really puzzled people, especially in Romans um, 1, 16 through 17, is that Paul uses this language in Greek, it's it's ek pistaos ace piston uh, is the language. The righteousness of God is revealed ek pistaos ace piston, and there's different ways people have tried to translate that. Some people say, well, it's it's from faith to faith, uh, and so some people have said, well, that means then it's it's from faith to faith. That means it's just all about faith, and so they've they've translated that uh, by faith from first to last. You'll find that in the NIV, for instance. Yep. Um, and uh, other, the other possibility, though, that I think can can be um, demonstrated as not just a possibility, but actually as the as the more likely solution, is that the word ek in Greek um, doesn't just mean of or from; it also means by. So it's it's frequently used as means. So I think that you can make a strong case that in this in this particular example, that the ek pistos ace ace piston means by the faithfulness for the faithfulness, or as I would prefer it, by allegiance for for allegiance. So the righteousness of God is revealed by allegiance, meaning um, that it's, it's um, by the allegiance of Jesus, that he's the one who's the actor there, but that it's for allegiance then. And that would be, that would be, it's the for the allegiance that we are then to um, live out under the banner of Jesus. 
That's super good. Um, so, but as you've alluded, there there is a connection between getting the gospel right and understanding pistis as allegiance. So, Matthew, from from your perspective, if you can, in in a sentence or a couple of sentences, what would you say the gospel is? If it's not justification by faith, how would you distill it down into a sentence or two? I would start by saying the gospel is the declaration that Jesus has become the forgiving king. So the good news is that he has become the forgiving king. So he's been installed at the right hand of God as the one who uh, has died for our sins uh, and that our sins are forgiven in him um, and that he's been raised from the dead. Um, But the, the focus really is moving towards his enthronement. So if we want to kind of put the whole narrative together, I think we want to begin with the idea that Jesus is the king, and then we kind of move back from there and say, as this king, he actually um, was sent by the Father to take on human flesh, and this was brought about through the agency of David's line, so that he was born into David's line, um, and that uh, he lived a full human life as part of that, going around doing good deeds, Um, uh, and then he dies on the cross for our sins, is buried, raised on the third day, is seen by many witnesses, uh, and then he is enthroned at the right hand of God as son of God in power, where he now rules, and that he will come again as judge. Uh, And all this is in accordance with the scripture, but especially Paul focuses on um, both uh, the cross and the resurrection uh, as being in accordance with the scripture. And that fits really well in line with um, the the vast amount of scholarship indicating the the very political nature of calling Jesus Kyrios, um, calling him Lord. Um, and it helps us understand that Jesus himself preached the gospel and the kingdom of God. So yeah. um, in light of that, it seems to make perfect sense that if the gospel is um, the, the enthronement of Jesus, the lordship, the kingship of Jesus, however you want to state it, then um, faith... Pistis as allegiance really does, I think, make sense uh, within that framework, within that paradigm. Um, uh, yeah. That's, so, can go ahead. Oh, yeah, that's that's helpful. It reminds me of what what you were we, we sort of were touching on earlier when we talked about how words mean things and why there can be confusion over this, um, because I think that what 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 sometimes times happens, and I've gotten some pushback by a couple scholars on this, although I'm actually not too many. Um, but uh, some some people, I think, will, would want to say, well, allegiance is sort of a rare meaning for pistis, so you're overplaying your hand, right? Um, the problem is that that misunderstands how words mean things. Um, we can't just sort of count meanings in that way um, because that's sort of to take a dictionary approach. Um, and the, the way that we actually make, make meaning happen um, is mainly through... Um, through having a bias towards a single a single meaning, um, and that we then up, we then look to apply that into multiple different contexts. So studies have shown that most most words that we use aren't inherently what's called polysemous. They don't have multiple multiple meanings. Some words do, but most don't. So just to use for the uh, example, if I use the word sheep, right? Like probably a woolly a woolly creature, an animal jumped into your head. Now we might we might use we might say oh that person is a sheep 
you know, um, and we might speak of a person as a sheep, someone who's easily led astray or whatever it might be, right? But that, that word is not genuinely polysemous. We really have just one idea that jumps into our mind when we hear the word sheep. Similarly, when, when an ancient person used the word pistis or pistuo, they had a singular meaning that was attached to that, uh, more or less one concept, and it was trust. Uh, trust is at the center of the pistis word group. Study after sh study has shown this to be true. I think especially of Teresa Morgan's recent book, um, Roman Faith and Christian Faith, where she looks exhaustively at the at the word pistis and, and all of the lexical words associated with it, including the Latin fides, uh, and shows that uh, at the center of this was the idea of trust. Now, what ends up happening, though, is contextually that word gets applied then. I mean, we can take trust and we could apply that to patron-client relationships or to business contracts or to assurances that have to do with, um, you know, um, uh, offering a bond, you know, uh, to, to assure that work will be done, a payment, right? That could be a, a use of pistis. Uh, or we could, we, we could use it actually to talk about even just truth. Um, pistis is confirmation or things like that. That's an older usage. So the word pistis has a vast range, but of course part of the way that can get mobilized when we're talking about a sovereignty or a ruler would be in certain contexts to speak about pistis will then to involve the idea of an allegiance to, a trust in, uh, your, mm -hmm. your, uh, this, 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 this posture that you have toward this other person can't be described with just the word trust. It goes much further beyond that into loyalty. Um, and, and we see instances where that happens. So w I think that the, the dictionary approach, sort of um, what people do is they'll kind of look through the dictionary and be like, well, there's six different meanings of pistis or whatever it might be. Uh, and let's, <laughs> let's find which one works, right, or whatever. Um, it just, it's just naive about how words mean things and how we decode language. Um, and um, we need to do harder work on cognitive linguistics, I think, before we're going to be really prepared to, to, um, to, to deal with these kinds of categories fairly. You mean I can't just, um, you know, look up the Greek word and then and then, you know, open my BDAG and, and find the, the one usage that I think, you know, uh, that I like the best. That's not how that works. Well, you know, you can do that. Uh, I've heard a, I've heard a lot of pastors uh, who do that in their sermons. Um, but yeah, uh, as scholars, yeah, obviously, yeah. Um, I think that's a pretty big fallacy that uh, probably yeah. D.A. Carson points out if I can. I don't know if he does or not, but uh, I'm sure he probably does. He probably does. You, you mentioned. You mentioned that Roman faith and Christian faith by Teresa Morgan. Mm -hmm. uh, I ended up buying that after you recommended it around Christmas time mm -hmm. and read through it, which is fantastic. Um, and I think what's really cool in there is, is that she even goes so far as to point out that words for mental activity, mental ascent, um, there's usually another word in, in Greek or Latin that, that's used. Sometimes pistis fides is used for belief, but usually if they want to talk about mental activity, they would use um, you know a whole other uh, family, a whole other word group. Um, you know, so not only does she demonstrate that that pistis and fides do uh, indicate relationality, trust, loyalty, but that if you wanted to communicate merely mental activity, mental ascent, what we usually think of with with faith or belief, that there would um, be there would even be better words to use for that. Am I we're yeah, I think calling that correctly. I think that's true. Um, we we would want to say though. I think that pistio, when it's followed by hati, is is a very mm -hmm. very common construction for um, just um, asking somebody to agree with certain facts or to assent to them, to affirm mm -hmm. them. Uh, affirm them would probably be the the, the right language, right? Um, there's a there's a develop, uh, there's a sense of entrusting yourself to that being true, right? An affirmation. Mm -hmm. So if I said, you know, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. 
um, that I believe that, you know, introduces a proposition that Jesus rose from the dead is the proposition, right? And I'm, I'm being asked to affirm that. Um, there are other words that you could use, right? Um, but when, we, when we're using pistuo in that sense, there's not a, I mean, we can see the trust idea there, but we certainly can't see the allegiance idea, right? I, mm-hmm. It would be nonsense if I was to say, uh, I allegiance that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, <laughs> right? Um, so, right. So we do see pistuo used frequently um, to speak about um, something that we're called to affirm. And we need to be careful because, uh, yeah, there are some people, I think, who aren't aware of uh, maybe even how Greek language works that um, might kind of critique the allegiance model, partly on a simplistic idea of, of thinking that somehow there's a direct equation between them uh, when uh, I, other biblical scholars, are well aware of um, different uses of, of pistuo and uh, and how that might change, for instance, with, when haughty follows it, and we get um, we get a, a proposition. Right, right. So in your in your catalyst articles, and I think even your book a little bit, you you mentioned sort of the sort of the danger of getting it wrong and and distill it, uh, oversimplifying the gospel to justification and, and oversimplifying pistis to to merely mental um, assent or, or affirmation. What do you think is, what is some of the practical and theological danger with um, that oversimplification? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm, I think one of the biggest ones um, would, would refer to sort of our whole model of evangelism, um, at least as that's been practiced in the evangelical world uh, really in the last you know, 60, 70 years, even going back further than that to Moody and others. But um, really that the focus being um, that the gospel is that you need to trust that Jesus died for your sins, right? And what ends up happening is that trust gets included as part of the gospel itself, right? Um, so what's the gospel? The, go- the good news is I don't need to do anything, right? That I, that I only need to trust that Jesus died for my sins, and then I'm, I'm in the clear. I, I'm on my way to heavenly glory. Um, the problem is that trust has been moved internal to the gospel when in actuality it's external to the gospel. The gospel isn't trust that Jesus died for my sins. The gospel is Jesus died for my sins. The insertion of the trust of that part does something to us psychologically. Um, what it ends up doing is it ends up um, forcing us to be introspective about our own the, the, our own dimension of trust, I think, in an unhealthy way because it's the gospel itself. Right. Um, Am I trusting enough? Right. Becomes a critical question rather than us just responding to the gospel. Jesus died for my sins. We kind of um, we can end up in a vicious circle of um, of introspective introspection around the concept of trust. Now, we do ultimately need to trust that Jesus died for our sins. I'm not saying that we don't. I'm just saying that it's not part of the gospel. So when we go out and we proclaim the gospel to people, we should be proclaiming the good news. Uh, after the good news is proclaimed, we should say, in light of that good news, right, um, Jesus invites you to respond by giving your allegiance to him, uh, by, uh, by repenting from your sins, by trusting as part of that, that as you're giving your allegiance to him, that your sins are forgiven. Um, you do need to do that, right? I'm not saying that you don't, but I think whenever we move the trust part interior to the gospel, it gets a lot of weight of energy. Hmm. In relation to that too, uh, it's, I, I think translating uh, or rendering uh, pistis as allegiance gives us, a, it, it pulls us kind of out of our own heads and kind of, it kind of gets us to start living a certain lifestyle too. 
because uh, when, whenever I grew up, you know, I grew up in the church and I hear faith, but I never heard, and here's how or what a faithful life looks like, you know, for example, this is how you live into Jesus and how you follow and you serve and stuff like that. And so with allegiance, it, it carries political overtones, but it also carries, it, it, it sounds more like an action word, like here's how you have to do something in yeah. response, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that really is necessary for our churches if we're going to be active churches. I mean, Thomas and I are both pastors. You know, we, you know, uh, the lifestyle and the living into Jesus is something that's why, you know, uh, the, you know, the faith of Jesus is such an important thing for us as a model for imitation. But and I, I think rendering understanding it in terms of that helps us in terms of preaching, because it pulls us, like I said, out of our own heads. And, well, you have a head and you have hands. Now go use both of them. Don't just give a mental assent yeah. and just go from there. So, uh, yeah. What do you, what sure. do you think? Do you think? Sure. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, well, I'm excited about that. I'm, first of all, just excited that you're both pastors, and uh, that means these kinds of ideas are actually getting out there, right? Um, that, that these ideas are reaching the pew and the ordinary Christian. That was the intention behind the book. Um, and I, I think you're right. It's, um, it is certainly, um, allegiance certainly helps us to think about mobilizing um, uh, and the political dimensions of um, our, our Christian um our Christian life much more thoroughly than we might be otherwise. It, it, I think that it, it, it disallows us from um, just um, making a decision or praying a prayer or separation of church and state ideas even that like, well, uh, you know, church is my, you know, is, um, is my faith thing, you know, and meanwhile, like the business world, the, the world of stateship or politics or whatever it might be, well, that's something else, right? And never the two need to meet. Uh, it forces us to realize that that's a lie that we've been sold um, and um, that we we can and must do better as the church. So, yeah, one of the one of the hallmarks of Protestant thinking is this idea that works play, uh, you know, to oversimplify it, no no role have no role whatsoever in in salvation. And um, you know, we've got people who will pull out Ephesians, um, you know, two eight to to really drive that home. Um, but when you understand faith as allegiance, that sort of changes the whole paradigm on works. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? What, what, understanding faith as allegiance, what does that do to works and salvation and all of that together? Yeah. Um, as far as works goes, um, I think that the best way to think about works is that they are certainly um, part of our final salvation. Um, Paul says as much in Romans 2, 6 through 16. Right? He says that we are going to be judged for eternal life on the basis of our works. Um, some people are just stunned by this. Right? They, they've read past, <laughs> read past that text so many times that uh, what ends up happening in the history of, of scholarship is, um, is that um, Martin Luther and, and his heirs proposed that um, that, that section you know, was, um, uh, was a sort of a hypothetical um, and, that, and that Paul wasn't being uh, serious because we know that nobody can actually perform good works, right? And so that Paul was just uh, merely um, being hypothetical in that section. The problem is that contextually there's nothing that would suggest that. He's just being hypothetical. Um, right. So we do have to figure out a way to integrate this, and I think that increasingly scholars are trying to. Um, I, uh, I do appreciate um, the contribution, for instance, of Thomas Schreiner, um, who argues in his Faith Alone book that um, 
uh, that uh, he would want to see faith as being essential and works as being essential. And I applaud him for wanting to hold the both together. Right? He, want, he does say that works are necessary for our final salvation, that we must persevere. Um, we would have a, some minor disagreements, though, as he would want to argue, for instance, that faith has to come first and it has to produce the good works and so that the good works are only evidence uh, of our prior faith. Um, I just find that the Bible doesn't speak that way whenever it speaks mm -hmm. about um, faith. It doesn't speak that way. Uh, it seems to suggest that, um, that somehow or another our faith is something like allegiance and that our good works as empowered by the Holy Spirit fit into that. Um, so it's not that the one causes the other. You could only say the one causes the other if you're wanting to, um, to, to take a hardline view of, uh, of, of an initial sort of declaration of faith being uh, what's determinative, right? And, um, and therefore, that once that declaration is made, then you get the Holy Spirit, and then you can do good works. But again, we start, I think, getting into problems with, um, with how Paul actually presents what's called the order of salvation, whether he is presenting that, uh, and how all that gets packaged together. Do you think it's a, a problem within at least some sections of Protestantism, I knew I grew up with it, was that this sort of, uh, Paul's language becomes overly mechanized, overly, um, I don't know what the word is, but just everything becomes sequentially, everything, it, it's almost like a car being built in front of you and you're handed to you. It's all this stuff little fits together. Rather, it seems like, from what you suggested, and I, I think I would agree just on my own reading of Paul, a lot of the stuff is, you know, two sides of a similar coin. There, Paul doesn't seem to have a problem, you know, uh, having these two things said together, like you mentioned, but I think for, do you think there, that's a problem within, say, Protestant theology, or at least some sides of Protestant theology that seeks overly mechanistic ways of, of doing Christian theology? Do you think that's an issue? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, I, I think some of it just becomes a, a real um, wariness over good works and um, just a, a concern that, like, if I if I do good deeds for Jesus, right, um, <laughs> that, that this might be actually dangerous for me because then I might start trusting them. Um, and so, gosh, I had that opportunity to go serve in the soup kitchen, but you know, if I start doing that kind of stuff, like, well, then I'm going to be starting to do things and I might fall into the trap of trusting in my own righteousness rather than Jesus's. Um, and so there can be these head games that I think are played, you know, around um, around good works. Um, so I think I think the new perspective on Paul has been help, helpful for us here and in, in thinking about what works actually were, how they fit into um, overall um, Jewish soteriology within Paul's day and age, how Paul's interfacing with that. I wouldn't want to endorse everything that um, has been said by advocates of the new perspective, as obviously it's multifaceted. Um, but on the other hand, I would say that certainly it's moving in the right direction. There's a lot of good sensibility there, um, even if it has its excesses, and I think it's been helpful. One of the things that the new perspective brings up, and you even bring up in your book, is that we have to delineate between works in general and how oftentimes, especially in Paul, works become shorthand for um, works of the law, um, ceremonial works, and that oftentimes I think um, Protestants, you know, post-16th century, we see anytime it says works and we just think, well, that means, oh, well, anything good, um, when oftentimes Paul is, is referring specifically to um, very specific ceremonial Jewish things uh, and not just, not just good works in general. 
Yes. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, yeah. That's very important. But uh, I think on the other hand, some people have said in light of that, well, then we don't have to take Paul seriously. But Paul does say that we do actually have to perform them. I mean, he does he does want to see these works of Torah as something that needs um, that needs to be performed for life to result. So um, I think that we uh, – that's, I think, why some people have reacted to the new perspective as they've said, sort of said, well, um, people are just sort of saying there were works of law. And so therefore they didn't really matter because they were just boundary markers or they were just badges or whatever it might be, you know, of your Jewish membership. Well, that's true. Most of the, most of the focus was on it being a badge of your Jewish membership. But that didn't mean that it didn't actually have to be performed, right, um, and that it didn't mean that uh, that wasn't connected with the idea of life resulting because that's what, that's what the covenant is, right? The covenant says do this and you will live. Um, so I think that we don't want to say that that was a raw trying to earn salvation per se. Um, right. But on the other hand, um, those who saw themselves as covenant members did feel that they were obligated to keep the, to keep the terms of the covenant uh, and that their life depended on it. So how does that translate then into um, works that are – what works would you say then are required um, and that's, that might be a loaded question, but, you know, it, new covenant, right? We, we know we don't need circumcision. We, don't, we know we don't need animal sacrifice. What would you say that, according to Paul, um, really are sort of the non-essential um, aspects of obedience or allegiance that, that are kind of, kind of mandatory? Yeah. Um, well, Paul, interestingly, doesn't really speak in the kind of mandatory way. Um, he, he, he does a little bit. Um, but he, he's, I think he wants to put the focus on allegiance to Jesus and saying that it needs to be embodied. And um, what he tends to say is that certain kinds of practices do not result in life. Like if you're in Christ, you're not going to be doing X, Y, or Z, right? He has um, some pretty um, hefty sin lists, right, saying that those who live in this way, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God, right? Um, and so there, there would be practices that um, are explicitly forbidden. But we don't really find so much in the other direction where Paul says that you have to do these things or you won't live. Uh, when he does say that, they tend to be very generalized also. Um, and so um, the conclusion that I would draw from that is that Paul um, was wary of legalism. And that's um, one of his main targets, that mm -hmm. he, he, he is wary of the idea that one could say you need to do X, Y, Z, or D. You need to go serve in the soup kitchen. You need to, <laughs> you, know, um, you know, whenever your grandfather is old, you have to go help him chop firewood or whatever it might be. <laughs> that's your good deed. Um, I, I think that Paul would have been wary about saying, you know, no, everybody's got to chop their grandfather's firewood. I think Paul would have said everyone has to be allegiant to Jesus. Um, the Holy Spirit will indicate to you what that should look like. And clearly, there are certain kinds of things that the Spirit will not allow you to do while you're in Christ. Sorry, all I, all I can think about is Romans 12, the 1 to 8, present your bodies as a living sacrifice mm -hmm. and all being mm -hmm. one. And just the, the, the language of the Spirit, not, not necessarily in Romans 12, but say uh, 1 Corinthians 12, the language mm -hmm. of being uh, of mutuality, of, of being together and bearing one another's burdens and this, mm -hmm. the Spirit giving gifts and how... Uh, Paul doesn't seem to do viceless for good things, you know, like good things, <laughs> like you must do these good things. Mm -hmm. uh, rather, it's more of those things where it's like, if you're in the spirit, this should come naturally to you, and at least in some sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've, I've seen in the churches a lot of people basically tell me what to do. I, need, I want to do good things. I'm like, well, if, if you love Jesus, go 
be like Jesus to other people. And it's, it's just interesting watching uh, people respond to this sort of thing, uh, you know, with your scholarship in mind, and I'm bringing this stuff up to people. It's, it's almost people are having to kind of recalibrate what it is to do good things. Mm-hmm. You know, because how, how, I think in Christianity, especially, uh, we mentioned John Piper and John MacArthur very much on, you know, not always, but they, they do emphasize a lot of the negative aspect of things, you know, very, you don't do this. And it's like, well, that is helpful, but that doesn't tell anyone how to actually live and actually be like Jesus. It, tells, mm-hmm. it just tells them, don't be like Judas. And it's like, well, that's not a particularly helpful model. And mm-hmm. so uh, in, in terms of uh, living the Christian life of allegiance to Jesus, uh, based on what Thomas said and other things, uh, what is the role of of the of the body, not just the individual person, uh, but the body of believers in, uh, in in bringing people to live like Jesus and love like Jesus? How uh, how do, how can our churches do that in a in a more uh, well, for lack of a better word, gospel centered way? Yeah, well, I think you're acting, asking more of a pragmatic question than a theological question. Obviously, yeah, the Spirit is the Obviously, unity, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. uh, and is the empowering source of all that, and uh, and that's even rooted in the gospel, right? One of the things that we notice in Romans one three and Romans one four, when Paul articulates the gospel quite clearly, one of the things he says actually that's interesting about Jesus's reign, right, or his reign as Son of God in power, is that 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 it's in as much as it pertains to the Spirit, uh, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. He seems to suggest that the reign of Jesus and the Spirit's presence are coextensive in some way. Um, that being said, since your question was much more practical, um, how do we um, how do we live a more allegiant life to Jesus? What are some of the main things that um, are obstacles to us in the church today? Um, I, th- I think that um, I, I don't I don't know this is in my area of expertise, and so I, I speak with some caution. But um, I certainly think that um, you know, kind of uh, the cell phone culture is is deeply problematic um, and is uh, consuming people's lives in ways that are very unhealthy. Uh, people are constantly gazing at um, inappropriate images, constantly in their news feeds, um, constantly um, bombarded with, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the quest to be liked or to, uh, or to cause other people to like them. Um, and I think it's doing some serious damage. Um, you know, I, I know that's a common target, but, um, you know, as someone who grew up in an era where that wasn't prevalent, um, you know, as I'm all of 41 years old, um, uh, it's, uh, it's still, it's telling, I think, how even my college students interact in comparison to whenever I was in college, my undergrad students. I mean, they come in now and um, they are all on their phones. They don't talk to one another. They look straight down at their phones. Maybe they're Snapchatting with each other in secret and I don't know it. Some of them are undoubtedly. Um, but they don't even talk. They don't even talk to each other. I mean, there's hardly any conversation, you know. And uh, it's sad. I mean, whenever I was in college, we came in and uh, you got to know the person sitting next to you and uh, and everyone around you. There was usually a buzz in the room. And I mean, I can see a remarkable difference, uh, even between when I started teaching and now. I can see a difference mm-hmm. in how um, students are um, engaging the world around them. Um, now, I, I don't want to say these technologies are inherently evil or so on and so forth. Obviously, you know, that's, that's not nuanced enough. Um, but if you want me to get pragmatic, I would say that's one, one easy target that I do think that the, the church loyalty to Jesus, what does it mean? It means um, certainly putting that thing down and having some real time with real people um, in your family life, uh, in your church. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's important. Oh, that's good. One of the things I know you, you talk about in your book is you your your goal is to sort of change the language, change the terminology. So I, you know you'll be happy to hear that at least it, you know from from um, 
my platform here in the church, I've been using the language of allegiance um, more and more. I think it, um, I really do think, I, I just think you, you hit the nail on the head um, with it. I, I, I've said, um, and not, not entirely um, unseriously, that I think your, your book may be one of the most um, important in the last 20 years, if not more, if people would take the time to read it. Uh, because I think it makes sense of Scripture as a whole. We we no longer have to put up these walls between you know the the so-called doctrinal and so-called practical sections of Paul. That that you know when you understand pistis as allegiance, well, the practical is the natural outflow of everything that he said. It's not like this is an optional add-on. You know the the way that we we treat each other, the way that we we love each other, the things that we do with our bodies are not just nice things um, or or things just for rewards, but these are things that are inherent to living in allegiance to Jesus as King, and and it's a paradigm shift that is just um, I mean I can't think enough. It, it, it's done so much to help me um, communicate this in a way that I you know a little bit of my story. Uh, for several years, I, I've been wrestling with this whole idea um, as I, w- I would read through Scripture. And I came from a tradition that was, um, you know, had so, it was the a once saved, always saved type sure. thing. You, mm-hmm. you just had to, you just had to believe. And if you believed, then everything else was just about rewards. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I read Scripture, I'm like, well, that, I mean, I just don't see that. But I didn't have the language for it, um, you know, until I started reading some of right stuff. But right, you know, right is great, but I think the language that you put to it helps me communicate it, and it's something that people um, in my congregation, without seminary training and all that, they get. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. I, you know, I just want to, <laughs> I want to uh, thank you for well, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's, that's good. I do think that it is, uh, it is something that's nice, because I think that, um, you know, scholars and, and pastors, we appreciate nuance, and many lay people do too, right? Um, but um, some, some don't, right? And they, they just want to know <laughs> the, the basics. And, um, you know, and once it begins to, to dive into the details and to delineate, um, well, they begin to lose them, or they begin to lose interest, right? But I do think mm-hmm. that, um, yeah, the allegiance metaphor is helpful in that sense. Is we all get it. We get allegiance, and um, uh, we know what that looks like in the workplace. We know what it looks like in, in terms of sports. We know what it looks like. I mean, it fits into our cultural model, even even in a culture that is distant from allegiance in terms of political structures. We still might have allegiance to a party, a political party, even if it's much more dif- much distant from the ancient world and what allegiance to a king would have looked like there. But yeah, that's that's very very encouraging. It actually encourages me uh, all the more because I'm in the middle of writing a follow-up book to Salvation by Allegiance Alone, um, that will be intended for a um, a wider audience, uh, hopefully. Oh, good. Uh, as it's uh, it, it will be with a a trade press uh, that's part of the Baker Publishing um, family, the, the Brazos imprint. Uh, so Wonderful. the idea is that it will be it's written. You know, at a little more accessible level, I tried to do the best I could with Salvation by Allegiance alone, but um, <laughs> but uh, a little more accessible with a little more storytelling and a, a little more practical bent. Um, but uh, but rehearsing some of the, the same um, fundamental principles, trying to reframe them in different ways uh, that will be helpful for an audience that, you know, ends up reading both books. But you certainly wouldn't have to read Salvation by Allegiance alone before reading the next book. Um, the idea is that it'll be its own independent thing, but for a wider audience, I hope. Get these ideas out there. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, that's something I can actually, I mean, I could give, my church is uh, highly educated. A lot of them are teachers in biology, English, and physics, like really brilliant people. And so uh, giving them even Salvation by Allegiance alone, I think, would uh, go really far. But I'm looking forward to that book. And I also uh, just 
for my own self, I, I've been, I got a brief book con or I have a book contract with Wiffenstock and I'm working on sanctification, hmm. but I was looking on stuff on the Trinity and, uh, Joel Green, I believe it was recommended your book, uh, birth of the Trinity. I mm -hmm. believe, is that what it is? Birth yep. of the Trinity with Oxford yep. university. Yep. The birth of the Trinity. And I started reading it. Yep. And, uh, and I started reading it and because I came from the perspective that Romans one, cause you know, it went through seminary and stuff. I thought Romans one did, 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 uh, did teach adoptionism and all these sorts of things. I'm mm -hmm. like, well, I'll just have to deal with that. Um, but in reading this and, uh, and kind of meditating through it and translating and working through it, I was just, I was blown away just by just the, the way Paul speaks and how you brought all this forth. You and Joshua Jip, by the way, his, his, his article as well on, yeah. on Romans one. And so it was just really powerful to me just kind of, to stop and think and basically go, I can now go to the church uh, with this book or this idea and these, you know, these things. I've had people actually ask me, is Jesus God? Because Romans 1, he doesn't look like he is, you know, the, these sorts mm -hmm. of things. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's just really cool to see uh, Christian scholarship beginning to make its way in because, I mean, let's face it, only it feels like only relatively recently that the new perspective is being talked about in churches. And that's only because John mm -hmm. Piper and N.T. Wright just had their little dust up <laughs> and now people <laughs> now people are actually willing to talk about it. But I think in the advent of the internet, it's one of the few good things about the internet is we can now go, here's what uh, came into being actually means, that, that uh, substantival participle in mm -hmm. Romans 1-3, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and how, how this not only affirms Christian orthodoxy, but gives us something in a way we can actually live into, you know, as well as allegiance. So I, I'm just really excited just to use your work as an example, but just by, at the way of Christian scholarship being able to be brought forth to people to uh, understand scripture better. And, and of course, while understanding scripture better, uh, being able to live into it and live into the truths and being moved by the spirit. So it's really cool to see, uh, see all this kind of working out. Yeah. Have you seen uh, Mike Bird's new book yet? I can't think of the name of it. I'm yes. Uh, I, I read it. It's, uh, it's here somewhere. Yeah. Jesus, the eternal son. I, yeah. yeah the Jesus, eternal son, the eternal that's son. right. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. It's good. It's helpful. Yeah. Yeah, it is. He goes through some of the same material and, um, you know, and really I think it's a, a pretty strong counterpunch against adoptionism. So, um, yeah, for those in your audience who might be interested in, that's a pretty good quick read that um, I think um, gets, gets through a lot of, um, of a, a weighty theological conversation in a light-hearted way that uh, really gets to the um, uh, it packs a lot of punch for it being short. I think it was an excellent little book. So yeah, it is. And Mike's just a fun read anyway. Do, yeah, you know, even if you is. disagree with Mike, yeah. he's just a fun guy to read. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, just it's if we're doing scholarship for the church, it's really cool to see your work getting out there and people wrestling with it. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. Oh you're, yeah, you're welcome. So we, we want to be respectful of time. We're coming up close to an hour now, but I've got two questions for you, Matthew. Um, I'll just give them to you uh, right now. Um, the first one is, what is what are some of the most annoying ways that your work is being, you think, misinterpreted or misrepresented? And then the follow-up to that is, what is some of the best and most helpful cr uh, critique and pushback you've received? So okay. best and worst. Okay. Yeah. Um... Well, so let's see. The, probably the most annoying ways. Um, I, um, I suppose when people, you know, as I've already mentioned, um, there are some people who uh, I think have simplistic ideas about what I'm arguing about what pistis is, and that's frustrating. Um, as I'll, I'll have people say that, like Bates argues that you know um, that faith just means allegiance or something like that, as if that's what I'm arguing in the book. Um, obviously, mm -hmm. you know. Um, if you just take a glance at the book, you might think that's what I'm arguing. If you actually read read with care, um, it would be pretty hard to get that impression. But nevertheless, even some professional reviewers have uh, have sort of come back with that critique. 
Um, that's frustrating. Um, I think there's there's also some, you know, um, sometimes really vague statements that are that are challenging. Like, I'll just to point out one. I I, I appreciate Thomas Schreiner, so not to pick on him overly much. Um, but for instance, he reviewed my book for the Gospel Coalition. This comes it was it was actually a review that came out before the book even released. Um, and uh, and one of the things he says is like for instance that faith is fundamentally receptive. And um, this sort of is a, um, obviously playing into the Reformed camp's preconceived ideas about what faith is. Uh, the idea is mm-hmm. you can't do anything for your salvation. God has to do it all. And so, of course, if God has to do it all, well, then he has to give you faith, too. There's, you know, there's some sense in which that might be true on an ultimate systematic level, like that God is mm-hmm. the author of everything, right? And um, we would want to ultimately see God as um, authoring um, and, 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 and being the sovereign provider for everything. But it's mm-hmm. certainly far distant from the way that, that the New Testament talks about faith. The New Testament doesn't consistently speak about pistis uh, as a received thing. It actually rarely does. It does sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it's, it's certainly not the point of emphasis, right? I mean, when you're reading through the text and you're reading about faith, it doesn't talk about it being primarily receptive. Um, so I, I don't like those kind of move backs to ultimate um, sort of like larger systems um, as a way of critiquing what what are intended as as close readings of the text. Uh, that frustrates me. Um, let's see. Um, obviously, the free grace people frustrate me, but they're so far out to lunch. I don't know that anyone's taking them seriously anymore. Um, <laughs> I, I think some people are. I mean, um, but I, I, when you when you try to find an actual scholar who's a free grace person, gosh, good luck. I mean, there's you can hardly find anybody anymore. Um, there are there are I think a, still a, a network of churches and pastors that would support free grace positions uh, under the influence of Zane Hodges and Charles Ryrie and uh, uh, Earl Rademacher and other people like that who who championed this idea that. Um, that really, that uh, whenever the Bible says you just need to believe in Jesus, uh, that he died for your sins, that's all you really need to do is just believe in Jesus. Um, and, um, you know, this is such a naive, so naive on the linguistic level about about the words that actually lie behind the idea of believing, right? Uh, the pistis word group. It doesn't take seriously yeah. any kind of ancient evidence. Um, that frustrates me, but... Um, yeah, I, I guess um, I could probably think of more, but th- those are the ones that immediately come to mind. Um, I've been actually surprised. I thought the book would generate more controversy than it has. It's probably still to come. Um, you know, I didn't write it to stir up controversy, but you know, when you're writing on salvation theory, and um, you know that um, you know, especially when you have a provocative new thesis, um, that it's it's yeah. it's probably going to stir up some ire. Um, I've actually been surprised by how docile um, the response has been from the academy and. You know, I, 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 it's certainly not because I'm, that the book lacks errors. I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're in there, but I've been gratified that people haven't pointed out a lot of them yet. Uh, it's probably still coming, right? Um, um, but I, I've been, I've been grateful so far, at least, that it's received a pretty, a pretty good hearing in the academy. Well, John Piper hasn't probably gotten his copy. Yet, so uh, just, just yeah, well, no doubt Piper's, uh, you know, sitting at home reading it right now. Um, <laughs> well, I'm sure he listens to our podcast. So after this, yeah, so okay. Yeah. I mean, he's the reason we have that one star review on iTunes. <laughs> um, you know, you, you bring up, and I think you're right that within scholarly circles, you're not going to get a lot of pushback. Um, and so, what I'm what I'm so thrilled about is that the, and what I would hope happens more is that this starts making its way down into the popular level because there there does seem to be. Um, 
quite a gap. And that's one of the things that we want to do on this podcast is to sort of help bridge the gap between things that most everybody seems to know within the academy and things that just don't make it, don't trickle down um, into the church. So from a, from a academic standpoint, I think you might be right. There's, there's not a ton of free grace stuff, but on a popular level, I mean, I, I still think of, you know, um, I mean, Tulian, um, I, I can't pronounce his last name very well, um, but was, was wildly popular with his, with his free grace stuff um, in certain, mm-hmm. certain um, circles within Lutheranism. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's, it's still there and it's still prevalent. And, and so I think that your book still has a lot of um, oh, for room sure. to, to start for making sure. changes. I, I, I think, you know, I mean, I appreciate you guys and having me on here and uh, helping me to get the word out. But I realize, yeah, that there are others speaking in this way. Obviously, the biggest voice, N.T. Wright, who's, who's not using the language of allegiance all the time. But certainly, I think uh, a lot of what he says would be congenial to, to what I'm saying. Um, mm-hmm. But but even but even that is still a voice crying in the wilderness when you look at the, the whole... <laughs> The whole landscape of Christendom, right? It's just huge right. and it's vast. And I mean, Wright is one English language voice. You know, he's right. a huge one, uh, and among scholars, the biggest voice. Um, so I mean, it's a huge platform, and he's getting a lot done. But when you look at the whole landscape of Christendom, you have to realize, like a little book like Salvation by Allegiance alone, is just a drop in the ocean, and that motivates me. It does. It it, yeah. it motivates me. I've been working really hard on this follow up book this summer. I mean, I was writing all morning, actually, before talking to you guys. This is what I've been doing every day is slugging away at this follow-up book. And uh, it's good as it, it, it energizes me and keeps me going, realizing we, you know, that even if I say it once, I need to say it a thousand times before anyone might even hope to hear it, right, um, as there's so much out there that will sort of just drown it out immediately. Yeah. Well, and I think this is one of the things that we're – the. For better or for worse, the, the Reformed camp uh, has done a really good job getting their robust theology down to, you know, forgive the hierarchical language, but the lowest levels. Um, and, and I feel like within sort of our, you know, whatever you want to call it, Wesleyan Arminianism, New Perspective, all of that, uh, it, we haven't done as good a job <laughs> um, mobilizing um, and getting this down into the hands of you know, the everyday parishioners. And so I'm thankful for, for what you've done with Salvation on, and I'm thrilled that you're doing an even more popular level book. Cause I think, I think we need to, <laughs> we need to have that same kind of uh, drive to, to get that good theology down to the people sitting in the pews. Um, Cause for some reason, and I just don't know what it is that the reformed camp has, has gotten theirs and they, they've done a really good job. And I just wonder what we can do to, to learn from them and then mirror it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we can all grow really big beards and start drinking beer. I think that's probably a good way to start. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, well, good. Well, again, we we want to be uh, respectful of your time, but one of the features that we uh, have on our podcast on a regular basis is something we call really bad pastor jokes. I'm going to put you on the on the spot. I know you're not a pastor, but you are a dad of mm-hmm, what is mm-hmm. it? Seven children now. Mm-hmm. Yes. Congratulations, yes. by the way, seven. on your on your newest edition. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure you've got a, a dad joke in there. If you don't, no pressure. But do you, do you have any corny um, pastor's joke, Bible joke, dad oh, joke? Oh gosh, you want to I'm, share with I'm sure you know it's it's the one that everyone's heard. You know, like a you know um, you know a, a, you know why was the Sadducee upset? Well, he doesn't believe in the resurrection, so he's sad. You see, ha 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 ha
We have no. That will be the first okay. time on this show. Good. That's yep. that's a right, particularly so yes. bad legendary one. I use that. As, I well, use here. that on, on my students though, and uh, I, and I say that you, you're going to hate me for doing this, but you'll thank me when we get to the exam, right? You know, as you're going to remember that the, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, uh, and it's going to it's going to help you out. So, yeah, that's that's a pretty bad one. <laughs> Well, here, I, I got one. I don't think I've used. It. I don't. I don't think I've used this one, Thomas. I got to use this one. Okay, what does a critical it. biblical Old Testament scholar name her three sons who are twins? Oh, no. Isaiah. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be triplets? Yeah, call them what you want. <laughs> uh, technicalities. Uh, Matt, is there anything We're that, we, a... that we didn't cover that you would like to, um, you know, for for our audience to hear? Uh, we'll, we'll definitely put a link to. Um, you know, your book in the, uh, in the comments again, was there anything that we, we didn't cover that you want to just make sure that we get out there either in terms of allegiance or in terms of the gospel? No, I'm, I'm just grateful for the chance to, to d- discuss this stuff with you guys. It's been a fine time. And, uh, yeah, I do hope that, um, yeah, that this, this message does continue to trickle down, uh, to the pews. I realize that probably a lot of your audience are, are Christian leaders in a variety of ways. And that excites me as, um, as, um, it's really often those people who can mobilize, uh, those who, um, are under their care. And, um, yeah, I just love to see allegiance to Jesus, the King increase in the world in general. Well, that's something. If if we had our beers with us, we would we would say cheers and amen to you or something of the sort. <laughs> yes. Um, well, uh, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, and thank you for the incredible work that you're doing um, in in the realm of scholarship to help make this accessible. And we're looking forward to what you come out with uh, with what you come out with next. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, thanks, Thomas. All right. Well, you've been listening to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. We'll see you next time.